0: with our study of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, looking at, uh, or 2 Corinthians by looking at chapter 12, and this will be the first of two lessons uh, that I plan on uh, 2 Corinthians 12. So I'm going to, I would like to study verses 1 through 10 of 2 Corinthians 12. There's a lot in here, I think this will take a whole lesson just to cover this, and to begin by reading it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10 verses. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or whether out of the body, I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise, and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Okay. Chapter two, chapter 12 of Second Corinthians could be outlined like this. A vision of paradise, verses 1 through 6. Second, a thorn in the flesh, verses 7 through 10. Those are the verses 1 through 10 are the ones I just read, and that's the part of the chapter which, Lord willing, I plan to cover this morning. And then the third part, the signs of an apostle, verses 11 through 13, and part 4, love for the church, verses 14 through 21. And those second two, those last two sessions, sections, sections 3 and 4, I will cover next week if the Lord will. Okay. So let's go through these verses and see what we can see. Verse 1, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Well, Paul finished the last chapter on the thought that he would rather not speak of what he had done for God, what God have done for, but what God had done for him. Now, sometimes we fall into the trap or, or in, stumble over the the stumbling block, as it were, of of being tempted to talk about what we've done for the Lord. When we, somehow we meant to start out talking about what the Lord has done for us, and we ended up talking about what we had done for him. That's not the way to do it. With Paul, it was just the other way around. He sort of started out, as it were, to talk about his qualifications, and he ends up talking about what God has done for him. And in the end, it turns out that what really has qualified Paul for the ministry is what God has done for him. God has selected him. God has called him. God has empowered him. God has sent him to be a minister to the Gentiles and to the Jews also, but to the Gentiles. So here he, he gives an example, well, actually in the previous chapter at the last couple of verses, where it sort of seemed almost to hang out there by itself, that little story about how he uh, escaped from Damascus talks about how I want to talk about what God's done for me. You know, I was in Damascus and the Jews were out to kill me and and I escaped by being lowered over the wall in a basket. So, uh, again, what God had done for him and how God had rescued him. And there's Paul, kind of helpless Paul, being lowered down over the wall in a basket, not heroic, but what he needed to do to serve God. And here he reemphasizes the fact that It's not profitable for him to boast of himself. That would be foolish. We are not of those who compare ourselves among ourselves or justify ourselves by ourselves, for they that do such are not wise. Uh, No, that's foolish. It's not profitable for him to boast of himself. But again, he turns to speak of what God had done. And now in the matter of special revelations. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or Whether out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven. Now, I know a man. It's kind of interesting. Verse 7 reveals that this man was Paul himself. But he keeps referring to this story. And in the story, he's not, I was caught up. I saw a vision. I don't know whether I was in the flesh or in the body. He says, a man did this. Just a certain man. Because... It's not important who it was. It's not important, well, in a sense it's important that it's Paul, but in a way it's not important that it's Paul. It's important that God did it, that he did it to Paul. Well, that was who he chose to do it to. He could have chosen anyone else. Uh, It's interesting in the Bible how often you come across the phrase a certain man a certain man had two sons. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. A certain man had a vineyard and so on. And uh, it, the story was about what God had done. It wasn't important what, uh, about who the man was. That's how it is with us. Uh, we aren't the important part. The important part is God and what he does. So I know a man who, 14 years ago, 14 years ago now, When was this? Scholars are not necessarily completely unanimous about uh, specific years in Paul's ministry. And it gets a little tricky. Obviously, Paul's not writing dates. And if he had, he wouldn't have written them in the same way that we do. And he would have written them. Uh, in, in another format, in another way, and he's not really doing that much, and occasionally different mentions of different things, which we can date or place by certain things. It's usually a matter of give or take a year or two or three, but uh, anyway, you slice it, Anyway, any scholar looks at it, 14 years ago would have been before Paul, the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey, so before he ever started his missionary work, or his actual missionary journeys. Now, he was preaching the gospel before that. Scholars seem to believe that Paul had his Damascus Road conversion experience sometime between 30 and 36, A.D. 30 and A.D. 36, maybe between A.D. 33 and A.D. 36. Now, if that sounds early to you, remember that our Lord was actually born, because you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Wasn't Christ crucified and, and rose from the dead in A.D. 33? So how could that be? But not so, because because, um, our whole system of dating things from Christ's birth, or the year of our Lord, A.D. Anno Domini, started, oh my goodness, five or six or seven hundred years later, I can't remember. It's dreadful that I can't remember when Bede was active. But anyway, it's multiple centuries later. And they tried to go back, someone tried to go back and calculate And it turned out he was pretty good, but he was a little off. And we now know that Christ was born sometime between 4 and 8 B.C. So uh, that throws off the dates. But anyway, we think that Paul was converted on the Damascus Road sometime between about 33 and 36. And he was writing the book. Book of 2 Corinthians in the fall of A.D. How about this is pretty precise, but they seem to agree on it, so I'm going to take it that they feel pretty certain. Uh, The fall of A.D. 56. So uh, 14 years earlier would have been uh, A.D. 42, 41, 42, something like that, uh, depending on exactly, uh, you know, and how many months. But um, that would have been, before, Christ, or before Paul started his missionary journeys, but after his conversion. And they think that around this time, Paul was preaching the gospel in the region around Tarsus, which is a city t- which is in today eastern Turkey, uh, and um, kind of around the northeast corner of the Mediterranean Sea was Tarsus. And that was Paul's hometown, of course, and that Paul was, for several years, preaching the gospel there. And apparently it was during that time, that he had this vision. Now, I know I would like to think that it was maybe it was when he got stoned in Derby and they thought he was dead, and maybe he was, maybe he departed the body, but no, the years don't work at all. That just won't work time wise, so it wasn't then. And one would like to think maybe it was when he went into Arabia and he was taught directly by God. That would make a lot of sense, but the years really aren't right. Uh, for that to be the case so unless our years are kind of off anyway but it definitely was before he started his missionary journeys and he had kept quiet about it whatever he had been doing whether somehow maybe our years are a little off and this really was while Paul was in Arabia in Arabia being probably studying the the scriptures studying the Old Testament scriptures and being led by the Holy Spirit (coughs) taught directly by God and maybe it was then because the scholars have the years wrong somehow. Or maybe it was while he was preaching the gospel. It does seem like sometimes God speaks to us while we are about the business of serving him. At any rate, it was 14 years in the past. And Paul hadn't spoken of it that we know of, nor written of it yet that we know of. It didn't show up in Luke's writings, which aren't finished yet. But he hadn't been talking about it. And here it is. Fourteen years later, Paul had kept it to himself until the circumstances, actually the need of the church, required him to talk about it. Now, he mentions here the third heaven. (coughs) So what does that mean? Uh, This is probably a reference to several definitions for the word heaven. Now, not the way we commonly use the word heaven, but a lot of languages use one word to encompass our meaning of the word heaven and also our word sky uh, which we see sometimes in archaic English the heavens declare the glory of God uh, which uh, would also take in our meaning of the word for space so the three meanings of heaven there could be the realm of birds and clouds the place where birds fly and clouds go clouds go higher than birds mostly but that's all one thing and we would usually refer to it now as sky but uh, a first-century uh, person speaking Koine Greek, the common language of the eastern half of the Mediterranean, would have said, "Renos, heaven. And then there's the realm of the planets and the stars. And yes, the ancients did know that planets were different than stars. Planets were called wandering stars. They knew that they were planets. And the others were fixed stars. Well, they, they rotate every 24 hours, but otherwise they're fixed. But uh, planets and stars were different in that they were farther away than the clouds. That was easy, because at night you could see clouds pass across the face of the stars and planets. That was another heaven, the heavens declare the glory. That's actually back in the Psalms, which is not Greek, that's Hebrew. But that uh, we find in the Old English, our translation, but the heavens declare the glory of God. And uh, we'd say the space sky and space declares the glory of God. You know, day into day utter a speech, night and night showeth wisdom, and we have the sun, and so forth. Well, anyway, that's the second heaven. And then there's the third heaven, the abode of God. So the third heaven. The ancient Hebrews, some of them, not in Scripture, definitely not in Scripture, but extra-biblical writings, some uh, Hebrew mystics, divines, thinkers, whatever, had come up with the idea that there were seven heavens. That's where you get that, the seventh heaven, and so forth. But that's not a biblical idea. It's very hard to score with the Bible. and If there are seven different levels of heaven, the Bible doesn't tell us about it. So the third heaven probably means not the sky or not space among the stars and planets, but to the abode of God. Verse 3. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. So isn't this repetitive? Yes, it is. Paul repeats it for emphasis. So he's told us this. I, kn- I know a man 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows, etc. And he says, but, but listen, I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So what's he telling us? Well, he does know that there was such a man and this really happened. And of course, the man was Paul himself. So yes, he knows about it, but he, he just doesn't want to name it as himself. Don't say I, but I know this man. <laughs> I guarantee you, I do know him. And then he really doesn't know the details of how God showed heaven to him. And Paul was the guy who did it. it was, I don't know whether God took me up into heaven bodily and showed it to me, or whether I dreamed he showed it to me in a dream or a vision. Uh, I don't know which it is. He does say, but I know God did show him this, show me this. All right. Verse 4. How he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Paradise. Paradises. Excuse me, paradisos. Paradisos, the Greek word, which is almost a cognate, isn't it? It sounds like paradise, paradis. Um, A park, a garden, or paradise. So that's a good translation in English. No, no complaints about the translation there. Do we find anything else in that lurking in that word? Well, that it can refer to a, a park, a beautiful park, or a pleasure garden. Um, now that ought to ring a bell. In fact, it will. The word paradise, paradesos, paradisos, paradesos. Now if I can pronounce it, um, occurs three times in the New Testament. So here in two other times, one of those times is Luke 23, 43. And by the way, the other two times, the speaker of the word, the user of the word in both cases is our Lord himself. So one of those is Luke 23, 43. And Jesus said to him, assuredly, I say to you today, excuse me, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. We'll get the comment in the right place. The Seventh-day Adventists want to move that comma. They really do. They, they say that comma should be moved so as to change the meaning of that and give them room for a, a false doctrine. But we'll place the... Uh, assuredly, I say to you, boom, today you will be with me in paradise, this day. All right, paradise, there it is. So, paradise, and I know there are different thoughts and theories and things that I don't have time to go into now. I shouldn't take time, but... What I can say, paradise is that place where the repentant, believing thief on the cross next to Christ, not the other one, but the one who repented and believed, was with Christ on that very day of the crucifixion, on Good Friday, as we call it. He was with Christ in that place. Some hours later, after the Roman soldiers came along and broke his leg and the leg of the other thief on the cross. Christ being already dead, they didn't break his leg. So what had happened by that time? Well, Christ had cried with a loud voice, it is finished. The veil of the temple had been torn from top to bottom. And Christ had given up the ghost and then died gave up the ghost, so he was dead. And then sometime later, not some minutes, perhaps later, the Roman soldiers came around by order of Pilate and broke the legs of the two thieves, this thief, and then he being, having his leg broken, being unable uh, to, uh, going into shock probably, which uh, would occur, and going into shock whilst held in a vertical position would be fatal, and then also being unable to push himself up. The thief died within a few minutes after that. And he was with Christ in Paradesos, in paradise. So that place, wherever that was. And then Revelation 2.7. He who, who, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, Which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now, this is also spoken by our Lord, but not during the time of his earthly sojourn. This is after, this is the risen Lord after his ascension who appears to John when John was on the Isle of Patmos in the Spirit on the Lord's day. We have another vision, and was Christ physically present on the Isle of Patmos? Well, I tend to think not, but he could have been. But, and the Holy Spirit revealed, and he had this vision, and uh, he saw the Lord. And he had messages for these seven churches in Asia Minor, one of which was Ephesus, and it's to that church that this sentence is spoken. Uh, he overcomes, I will give to each of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise, paradise of God. Hmm, okay. Now, uh, yes, the tree of life. Now, when last seen in a literal sense, it was in the Garden of Eden. with you know There was the tree of life, and there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree, tree of life, that expression also appears several times in the book of Proverbs, where it seems to be, this Proverbs being poetry, it's used figuratively. Wisdom is a tree of life to those who have it. So wisdom is is a source of life, an abundant life, and good life, and longer life, and more life, to one who puts wisdom in. And several times Proverbs says things like that, you know, such and such is a tree of life. But I think we could say, obviously, not referring to a literal tree with a trunk and bark and leaves and fruit. I think the tree in the Garden of Eden really was that. But in Proverbs, it was not, because poetry is figurative. We know that. That's why some of us don't like poetry so much. Why don't they just say what they mean instead of saying all these things? Um, and poetry. With apologies to my good friend Dr. Donald Williams, who, who loves poetry and, and writes poetry. And, and, uh, but uh, It's a rare poem that I like. Well, I like hymns. Most of my, all my favorite poetry is hymns. I don't know why that is. Anyway, but Don writes some good stuff. Um, anyway um, but poetry can be figurative and Proverbs was so what are we to make of the tree of life in the paradise of God well eternal life is in heaven with God that's what I make out of that and if there's a literal tree of life with with a trunk and bark and leaves and real fruit in heaven when we get there I will be delighted and if it's a figurative reference as the book of Revelation is often figurative Okay, that'll be fine. However God wants to do it, that's okay by me. But anyway, paradise, so it's heaven. And uh, goes along with that. Where I guess we'll be someplace, where the tree of life is, right? In the presence of God. And he heard inexpressible words. Uh, literally in the Greek, unsayable sayings, or speakings which cannot be spoken. The word inexpressible has the same root as the word for words, which means not just uh, individual words, but like someone has a word from God, uh, or um, a word of scripture, or something like that, meaning um, a, uh, a saying, a thing to say, like I have a word for you, or may I have a word with you, which usually sounds like trouble. But anyway, um, uh, saying And it's the same root there in Greek. So it's like unsayable sayings. I heard unsayable sayings. I heard unspeakable speakings. Yeah. So, and how is it unsayable, Paul? Well, it's which it's not lawful for a man to utter. That is, which a man has no authority to speak. Uh, The root there is the same from which we get our uh, authority or or power, exousia, um, and there was, I just don't have authority to say those things. I'm not authorized to speak. <laughs> and, when, and the difference between Paul and uh, someone in Washington who, who tells stuff he's not supposed to tell when he's not authorized to speak to the press is that when Paul's not authorized to speak, he doesn't speak. And he doesn't say those things. So God had given Paul a message which was just for him, for him alone, to encourage and strengthen Paul for the work that he had to do and the things that he had to suffer. I don't think God is likely to give any of us the same kind of vision or message that he gave Paul. I don't expect any of us to be caught up to the third heaven, into paradise, and to see and to um, hear unspeakable things that can't be spoken and we don't have authority to say them. I don't think so. I think sometimes God does bless us with. Um, things that just don't travel very well to others. They just we try to if we try to share it with others, it just falls flat. But I, I know I had that experience. Uh, think of of probably the clearest, most direct, uh, immediate answer to prayer that I ever experienced. And um, if I try to explain it to anybody else, it doesn't make much sense. But I know it happened. I know God really answered prayer there, and uh, that's enough for me. It was enough for Paul, too, and he didn't tell it until, again, it was necessary to share this, but not the words, not the words that were spoken. That was just for Paul. Maybe Paul needed, God knew, and God did know that Paul needed extra encouragement, extra strength to face all those things. We've read about before, and we'll allude to them again. Verse 5, of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Well, now, that sounds as though Paul were not the one. When we get to verse 7, we'll see that Paul definitely is the one who was caught up into third heaven. But what he's saying here is that it's really going back to what he started back in chapter 11. He's not going to boast of himself, but of what God has done for him. Now, he might be the recipient of God's great works. And haven't we all been the recipients of God's great, great blessing? And we've all been the recipient of God's grace. And we've all been, who are in Christ, have been the recipient of God's amazing forgiveness uh, and atonement for sins through Jesus Christ. Yes, we have. That's the great thing. Not that God did it for me, but, but that God did it for me. That's the big thing. And that's what Paul wants to talk about. Not of himself, but what God has done for him. The identity of the recipient of God's goodness is not even important enough to be named. He's merely such a one, such a one. Well, such a one, in this case, happens to be Paul, but that's not important. God did it for such a one, and he'll do it. He'll do, he he did what Paul needed. He did what such a one back then needed, and he'll do what such a one as you and such a one as I need today uh, by his grace, And what will be important is not that he did it for me, but that he did it for me. Paul's only role is to vouch that the story is true. And even then, only because it became necessary to share it, the church needed to know. While these false teachers were running around, (sighs) troubling the church in Corinth and the churches of Galatia as well about the same time, And saying, well, Paul, you can't listen to Paul. Paul needs them to understand, no, God has spoken to me and by me, and you need to listen. Verse 6. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And it's not on the basis of dreams or visions or prophecies that a man should be regarded. You should respect me. You should regard me. You should hold me in high esteem because I've had dreams and visions and prophecies, but for his good conduct and the truth of the message he brings. So we aren't just to believe because someone says, I have a message from God. I have a word from God. I have a word of knowledge. I have a word of prophecy. I have a prophecy about the future. And no, uh, first of all, the Bible says we're to believe not every spirit, but try the spirits rather whether excuse me try the spirits whether they be of God. So uh, and you know the fruit of the spirit is manifest; it's plain, it's open. So is this the Holy Spirit? If this is the Holy Spirit working in this person, then we ought to see the fruit of the Spirit. By their fruits ye shall know them, uh, Christ said, about teachers who might come. By their fruits he shall know them, and the fruit of the Spirit is manifest. Do we see that in this person? And then uh, we should also test the truth of the message that is brought. Well, how are we to know the truth of the message when someone shows up and says, I have a message from God. Don't question it. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, my. The things I have heard people say. Um, When you you have a prophecy, that's it. When you have a a revelation from God, that's it. You don't need to ask anything else. It's just revelation from God. Well, uh, yes, but first we need to figure out that it is a a revelation from God. I remember another preacher, and this is a preacher I heard preach a number of times, and it was not my father. Uh, It was a, a preacher I heard a lot. In years gone by. And he used to have a saying he liked to quote. And um, I won't say I gnashed my teeth every time I heard it, because I wouldn't have any teeth anymore, and it wouldn't have been good to do that. But uh, inwardly, I just kind of cringed and kept quiet. It's hard to believe I had sense enough to keep quiet back in those days. But he would say, A man with an argument is always at the mercy of a man with an experience. Well, that's true in the sense of how that verse in Proverbs says, when a fool and a wise man contend with each other, uh, there's there's just no peace. Whether he rages or laughs, there's no peace because you just can't convince a fool, fool of anything. Or like that verse that I find myself quoting often nowadays, though you grind a fool in a mortar with a pestle with the ground grain, yet will his folly not depart from him. So that's the sense in which a man with an argument is at the, uh, the mercy of a man with experience. Now, what do I mean by that? And how does that apply to testing the truth of the message brought? Because someone comes to the message and says, I had this experience. I had this vision. I had this revelation from God. Well, or, or say, let's suppose that you or I sometime, we have a dream. And, oh, is that dream from God? Was God telling me something in that dream? Probably not. I'm just going to say it right away, I mean, the odds are massively against that God is telling you anything in any dream that you have, um, or, or certainly any uh, any new revelation. I think we can just rule that right out of the question. Uh, sometimes a dream kind of reminds me of, of something that, you know, I need to be more careful about this in my life. and. It's probably because I was thinking, well, I was awake. I need to be more careful about this in my life. And then it was in the dream too. But um, how do we know whether the message is true? The obvious answer, what the church at Berea did when Paul, showed up preaching the gospel there. They were noble. They're credited with the Holy Spirit for being noble, more noble than those at Thessalonica, because they search the scriptures daily whether these things are true. And so when someone comes to you and says, I have a message from God, I have a revelation, I have a word to speak to you, then search the scriptures daily whether these things are true. And if someone claims he has a prophecy about the future, which is, ex- which is just vanishingly unlikely, The canon of scripture being closed, we are not to expect words of of prophecy, words of new revelation, but not to put God in a box and to say, well, I suppose I can't rule it 100% out. If someone should say that, we could apply the biblical test of a prophet given in the Old Testament. If someone says, I have a prophecy from God, every bit of that prophecy must be found to be true, must come true. And if Any item of that prophecy is false. That prophet is not from God. You are not to fear him. You are not to listen to him. And that is, by the way, and I step on toes, but I know there are some within the charismatic movement who teach that, uh, well, you can have a prophecy, a genuine prophecy from God, and it can be to some percentage, to some degree, False. There can be mistakes and false things in it. Not from God, there's not. Not if the prophecy was from God. If it is not completely true, it's not from God. So, try the spirits whether they be of God. Search the scriptures daily whether uh, the things that are being said are true. Verse 7. We move on now to the discussion of, thorn of the thorn of, of the flesh. It's a smooth transition here. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Abundance here is exceeding greatness. According to the commentators I read, perhaps the King James Version gets it a little uh, better, the old King James better than the new. uh, Abundance, the exceeding greatness of the revelations to me. Now, the revelations. What revelations? Well, Paul has obviously received many and great revelations of God. After all, as he is writing this letter, he is in the process of writing a book of the New Testament. And he's going to wind up writing a large amount of the New Testament. All those epistles, uh, he will, the book of Luke will, I think, be written under his auspices. The book of Acts will, I think, be written under his auspices. The book of Hebrew might have been written under his auspices, I suspect. Um, my suspicions about Hebrew, Hebrews, if it wasn't Paul himself, and sometimes I think it is, but sometimes I think it's not. And I know the Hebrew is, is the, uh, the Greek is different than Paul's Greek. So that doesn't seem to fit. So my other, my other thought is Apollos, very very eloquent and learned in, in Greek rhetoric and diction, uh, under the auspices of Paul. So yes, Paul's had many and great revelations, tremendously used of God. So yes, exceedingly great and abundant revelations, but uh, that he's saying uh, the exceeding abundance of the revelations, the last revelation he spoke of was being caught up into third heaven and hearing inexpressible words that it's not lawful for man to speak. So rightly that must be the reference here and that makes it pretty plain that Paul was the man caught up into third heaven. And on this, all the commentators I've looked at are unanimous. I, I have not found one who found it even doubtful that Paul was the man. So that's, anyway, that's that. Okay. The thorn in the flesh was for the purpose of presenting, uh, preventing Paul from becoming proud because of the revelations he had received. Now, we're not told what the thorn in the flesh was. Some people have speculated from another comment that Paul made that maybe there was something wrong with his eyes. He, I think he wrote at one point the later on in the book, if I'm not mistaken. I think he says, um, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. and you, you would have signed up to give me an eye transplant if you could have done such a thing. But whether that was the thorn in the flesh or not, we don't know. And the reference is obscure enough, I don't even think from that that I could say necessarily that Paul had a chronic eye problem. That maybe, but we don't really know. So that's, we have to leave it at that. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things that are revealed belong unto us and to our children that we observe to do all the words of the law. We just aren't told what the thorn in the flesh was, but it was something unpleasant. and He wanted it to go away. He called it a messenger of Satan. <laughs> that's... That clearly that wasn't a very pleasant thing at all. It was a messenger of Satan. Satan intended it for evil. I don't think Satan's purpose in this was, you know what, I'm going to help Paul not to fall to the temptation of pride. No, Satan, I'm sure, Satan and his imps are working on a daily basis to try to tempt Paul into pride. That was probably, you know, project number one for Satan. Get Paul to fall into pride or something else, if we possibly can. That's not what Satan wanted to do. Satan wanted to mess with Paul. He wanted to hurt Paul, and he was doing his best. But God allowed this only insofar as it accomplished his purpose. And it's good for us to remember the things that come into our lives that are unpleasant, the thorns in our flesh. This happened to us, and and we didn't like it. It wasn't fun. It wasn't enjoyable. But God allowed it in our life only to the extent and exactly to the extent that we needed it. Um, And so did Satan do it or did God? Yes. Kind of both. It was a messenger of Satan. Satan apparently just liked to hurt. Well, maybe if I give Paul this, whatever it was, that Paul called a thorn in the flesh, um, and Paul apparently didn't even want to specify what it was because, you know, he could have written what it was, but he didn't didn't. Maybe God left that out of scripture so that whatever our thorn in the flesh is, whatever our problem is, we won't think, well, at least I don't have an eye problem. I've got this other. No, it's the thing that is a messenger of Satan in your life. And uh, maybe Satan was thinking, if I do this to Paul bad enough, he'll just give up in the missions and he'll just give up preaching the gospel and not do that anymore. But he didn't. God allowed it only insofar as it accomplished his purpose. Verse 8. Whoops, verse 8. Yes, come now, verse 8. There we go. Watch, it'll probably click on two or three times more now. But anyway, verse 8, good. Concerning this thing, the thorn in the flesh, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Real short verse. Here's the thought, you know, Unpleasant things happen to us, things that just aren't fun and they aren't nice. I remember um, watching an interview, a a film of an interview with Francis Schaeffer when he had cancer, the cancer that finally took his life in the 1980s. And um, he said, it's no pleasure having cancer. Indeed not. No, I don't think anybody has ever suggested that it was. It's no pleasure having a lot of things happen to us that happen to us. Wow, I didn't want that to happen I wish that hadn't happened to me or in my life or whatever. It did. It happened. And sometimes these not pleasurable things, we, we pray that the Lord might remove them. And it's natural that we should. Uh, we can ask the Lord, you know, please heal my whatever it is that needs healing. Uh, or whoever it is that needs healing. Or please uh remove from me this situation that is paining me and causing me discomfort and pleasure, just suffering, whatever. We can pray for that. And um, I don't think that, uh, it certainly doesn't give any suggestion here that Paul did wrong to ask for that. But Paul was also willing to accept if God said no, which is, as we're going to see, is what God did say. He prayed multiple times that God would relieve him of that. And uh, it's not wrong for us to ask the Lord to relieve our sufferings, even repeatedly. We can ask more than once. And how we know that, it's not just Paul. Because we could think, well, Paul's probably doing the right thing. But then again, Paul is a fallen man. But the Lord himself, who is in all points tested like as we are, prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane that he might be spared the suffering that was ahead of him which suffering was by the express plan and eternal foreknowledge of God in eternity past and which Christ in his divinity knew. Uh, and he was the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And yet there in his humanity, in the night before his suffering, he prayed three times that it might pass from him. And, uh, Remember, he was tempted in all points, like as we are yet, without sin. So it's not wrong. It's not sinful. When we ask God, would it please you to take this pain from me? Would you be pleased to relieve me of this suffering or this whatever it is, be it physical pain, be it uh, emotional or psychological suffering of whatever kind it might be? It's not a sin, but... When we do so, we need to do so with a submissive spirit to God, which our Lord had and exemplified when he asked, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as as thou wilt. So, uh, So it was, and that's the way Paul prayed. And this is the way God responded. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He said to me, literally, he has said to me. So, you know, I've been asking the Lord, I asked the Lord three times, and he has said to me one translation, maybe a little freer translation than I like, but they, I, I, they usually get it right, I think, uh, translated this, um, And and each time he said to me, and he said to me each time, he has said to me, I've, I've asked the Lord, and I've asked the Lord three times, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. And he keeps saying that to me. Whether this is by an inner voice or an audible voice, we don't know. But God communicated that clearly to Paul so that he knew for sure that God had told him that. And, oh yes, the way it's worded in the Greek. I am not a Greek scholar to tell you, how significant this is, but to me, the word order strikes me. And he said to me, or and he has said to me, sufficient for you is the grace of me. And, you know, it's, it's enough for you, Paul. It's enough for you, Steve and Leah and Robert and everybody else. It's enough for you. That my grace, I have grace. It's enough for every one of you. It's enough for you, Paul, and uh, all of us. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. Um, my strength, that is my power, dunam, uh, dunamis, dunamis, power. Remember that often in the New Testament we read the word power. We're reading either a stand in power for the Greek word dunamis or, or the Greek word exousia. Uh, exousia, authority with the power to execute the authority and uh, the, what is commanded, and then dunamis, sheer raw might, power. Dunamis, like dynamo and dynamite, which are both based on the same Greek word, uh, root. So my power, my dynamic power, my might. Uh, I like, remember over there in Colossians, I like that phrase, strengthened with might according to his glorious power. Yes, my power, my dunamis, is made perfect. Teleati is completed, is fulfilled. My might is fulfilled, is completed, reaches its goal, reaches its, it performs its desired purpose and end in weakness. When you're weak, then my power is fulfilled, is is, carries out its task, does the thing for which it exists, fulfills its purpose, if you will. Uh, God's power is made, well, not made for, but God's power is intended uh, in God's mind. God uh, intends His power to be for the purpose of working in us and making us all that God wants us to be. We are most aware of how strong God is when we are most aware of how weak we are. By contrast, when we are rather satisfied with ourselves, when everything is going well, when we're feeling in tip-top health, have plenty of money and plenty of everything else that we want and plenty of opportunities and are quite satisfied with ourselves and the world, Uh, we are prone to forget how weak we really are and how much we need God's power, which is probably why God so rarely permits any of us to be in that situation of having tip-top health in every respect and plenty of power and plenty of money and plenty of everything and no lack or, or need in any way. I wonder how many of us are spiritually strong enough that we could would uh, get on spiritually the way we should. Indeed, that can hardly be. Rather, God usually allows us to uh, suffer uh, in one way or another, whether it be a lack of this or that, or, or uh, pain or suffering, physical uh, maladies, to remind us that when we're weak, then we're strong. That his power may rest upon me, Episcenose, uh Episcenose from Epi, upon, and Skenau, to dwell in a pitched tent, that the power of Christ may pitch its tent on me and dwell in me, pitch that Christ's power may may set up up a tent on me and live there, that his power may come down upon me and dwell in me, uh, so that the power of God may be working through me. And I wonder to what degree that is more than just the minimum power that we need to get through the thing that's happening to us, but uh, the power of God working in us for all the things that he wants to accomplish through us. We're best positioned to receive the power of Christ. We're most aware of our complete dependence on him. Last verse, chapter, uh, verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I take pleasure. I am well content. I think it good. I'm satisfied with it. Uh, These things are not pleasurable in themselves. Paul wasn't going to say to Silas, you know, and pardon, I speak as a fool, but Silas, let's go see if we can't get ourselves arrested and beaten up by the Romans again, or or beaten by the Jews again, or I sure would like to get stoned again. That was so fun. No, I speak as a fool. That's utter foolishness. That's, of course, he would not was not going to say that. And in his in his previous recitation, when he talked about all the things that was talking to him, that, that had happened to him, that he had suffered. And we find out that he had been, how many times he'd been beaten by the Jews and beaten by the Romans and how he'd been stoned and shipwrecked three times and then the other one's still in the future all those things he wasn't saying that that was a pleasure cruise he wasn't saying that was a nice vacation you know some folks may go swimming around with sharks for fun but Paul was not floating around on a board in the deep for 24 hours for the fun of it Paul must be more like me (laughs) not like no I know you you weren't floating around on a board for all that time I don't know that that would have been fun uh, and for anybody under those circumstances, he wasn't advertising those things as the fun of head. You know, this wasn't a recruiting poster for the mission for missions work. Go into missions and see the world. Get shipwrecked, stoned, beaten. No, these things were not fun in themselves. In fact, they were very miserable. And you have to think that when when they happened to Paul, he suffered. It hurt when they laid those stripes on him. Uh, He was tired and probably scared, even at the same time he was trusting God and hanging on that board in the ocean and in those storms and the shipwrecks and so forth. But he was content to bear them for Christ. I'm well satisfied. I'm well content. That suits me just fine. It's not fun in itself. It's not something I would choose to do for fun by any means having this thorn in the flesh, whatever that was, and all the beatings and all the rest, and I've just recited and we read about before, all that stuff, no, those are not pleasurable things. And nobody, you, you would be literally insane if you, you know, if you thought those things would be fun. When those rods came down on Paul and when those stones hit him, it hurt. But he was well content to bear it for Christ, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Strong again, mighty, dunatos, adunatos, a powerful, mighty. Uh, so I am happy to, to bear these things for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then the power of Christ can work through me. And that's better that way. Okay, let's close in prayer our Father, we thank you for these verses of scripture and we pray that you would apply them to our hearts. As only you can do. You who work most strongly in our weakness, so we pray that you would work in our hearts and minds as we feed upon these truths of scripture and help us to to take ple- to be well content to whatever sufferings you may have ordained for us that your power might work in us and we pray that you would bless in the service to follow and accomplish your will in that we ask in jesus name amen all right you